take a moment and pick up a baseball. Now toss it in the air. Now try it with your other hand, the non-throwing one. It's a little more difficult, isn't it? From a young age, we learn to throw a baseball with our dominant hand. It becomes second nature, a part of our athletic muscle memory. Imagine losing all of that in a sudden instant. Would you still continue playing baseball? Would you have the time and patience it would take to learn to throw with a different hand? To play the game at such a high level you'd play in the big league someday? Pete Gray did. Here's his story. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Welcome to Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you all for tuning in to another episode today. I had a lot of fun last week discussing about baseball's other pandemic in uh, 1918 and kind of paralleling it to the current situation with the coronavirus pandemic. And this week, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about an individual. We did a lot of those at the beginning of the podcast history. Um, I'm going to go back to doing more personal profiles. I think there's a lot of just great stories to be told when it comes to uh, baseball's past. But, you know, we'll certainly mix it up as we go. I have some great uh, suggestions, as I mentioned, from people who have been submitting them via Uh, social media messaging, email. Uh, If you have an idea that you'd like to hear, if there's a topic you want me to cover, send it over. You know how to reach me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Rounders Podcast, one word. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy to add that to the list. So, without further ado, just real quick, there's a shout-out to our new sponsor of the podcast, Risen Inbound. Risen is a marketing firm in Miami, and they're focused on helping businesses grow and reach today's 21st century customer. Risen works with companies across the globe, from local startups to international corporations, and they can help you build meaningful relationships with potential and returning customers. So if you're looking for an experienced, friendly, and results-driven team that can help you grow your business, check out Risen. They're available at www.gorisen.com. That's Risen with a Z. And you can also follow them on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, by searching for the username Risen Inbound. That's one word, Risen Inbound. So Risen, thank you for sponsoring this show. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. Let's get to our topic for this episode, Pete Gray. Travel with me to Nanticoke, Pennsylvania. The date is March 16, 1915, and on that day, an individual was born named Peter Weishner. Peter was one of five children, and his parents had recently immigrated to the United States from Lithuania. They moved to a small coal town, and his dad began working in the mines. Now, Pete as he became to be known, I guess, on the shorter end of the first name, he came from a very athletic family. His dad, of course, would work in the mines, sun up to sundown, very uh, physically demanding job, 
one of his brothers made a name for himself regionally as a boxer in the middleweight division. And from a very young age, his family encouraged physical activity and uh, being involved in sports. So Pete, from a very young age, grew up with, uh, I guess, uh, an interest in wanting to do something athletic. He took to baseball almost immediately. It was America's pastime, and he was now growing up in the United States. And uh, something happened very early on in his age that would have crushed most people's dreams of playing a professional sport, but did not in this case. When Pete was age six, he hitched a ride on the running board of a produce truck. And the running board is that step that runs along the side of vehicles, very popular in the early 1900s on automobiles. So he was riding on the running board of a produce truck. And like I said, the lip, I guess you could say, of a car. And the driver had to make a sudden stop. And when he made that stop, Gray fell off the truck and his right arm got caught in the spokes of the wheel of the truck. And it just mangled it beyond any hope of repair. The driver was so scared when he stopped the, the vehicle and saw what had happened that he actually left Pete injured with his arm in the wheel and just ran. And Pete recalls, you know, in later interviews that he can't remember a thing from that day. And I can't imagine he would the incredible amount of pain he must have been in when this occurred. I mean, at age six, too. He was found and he was rushed to the hospital, but they couldn't save his arm. And they ended up amputating it uh, above the elbow. So age six, a young boy loses most of his right arm. And Gray had been right-handed before the accident. So he lost his dominant hand. And he found out very quickly, look, if I'm going to do anything with my life, I have to learn how to use my left arm in the same way that I used my right one. And this included playing baseball, which was a sport that he became very interested in from a young age. Now, Gray's family, they came from tough stock. They had escaped a war-torn country. They came over here with nothing. They had to build a life from scratch. And they felt that the best approach to helping Pete uh, gain any sort of, um, I guess you could say, willingness to do something with his life was to downplay the injury and the loss of his arm. So they started from that six years old and on. They were going to treat him like any other member of the family. They were going to treat him like any child his age so that he would learn to be independent and really uh, take to himself to being able to learn how to do things despite the injury. Now, as I mentioned before the injury, Pete had developed a dream that he wanted to become a professional baseball player, and he never gave up on that dream. From that point on, he decided, I'm going to learn how to play baseball with one arm. That's already uh, a very challenging uh, step to take, but uh, he took to it almost immediately, and he learned to bat and field with his left hand. He would catch the ball with his glove, and then he would remove it, and he would transfer the ball to throw, and he would do it in one fluid motion. And just to give you kind of an illustration of how he would do this, he would wear a glove without any padding. So just imagine with me, he played outfield primarily. So he would uh, have the ball hit towards him, and he developed this technique where he would he would hold his left arm up with the glove on it in front of his body about shoulder height. He would catch the ball. And as soon as the ball hit his glove, he would roll the ball across his chest from his left hand to his right stump. 
And while that ball was rolling across his chest, that gave him enough time to take his glove off his left hand, place it on the stump of his right arm, and then pick the ball up again off of his chest with the left hand, and he would throw it back in that way. He would do this all with one hand, catching a fly ball. When he played infield, he had a different technique that he would use. If a ground ball was hit his way, he would let the ball bounce off his glove. You know, he'd field it with his left hand. He'd kind of pop it in the air as soon as it hit his glove. And the the glove would hit the ground. And he'd, with his free hand now, because he dropped the glove, snatch the ball while it was in the air. And then in one fluid motion, throw it to the base where it needed to be thrown. So again, a one-handed infield play. If he was backing up another outfielder on a play, he would just drop his glove. He would run into position behind the outfielder that he was backing up, and he would just snag the ball with his bare hand if it got past that player. So he developed very quickly the ability to field really any situation that came at him. And observers would say that he was faster using these motions than some players who had two hands. So we're going to talk more about his abilities later on. But again, I just want to give you, I guess, a picture of how he was able to be able to teach himself to play baseball. When he was at the plate, when he was batting, he would use a regular bat. He wouldn't use any sort of adapted piece of material. No adjustments were made. He would assume a stance just like any other player, except he would choke up on the bat with his one hand about six inches from the bottom. And as you'll see in a bit, this technique worked, and he became an especially well-known pull hitter. So we'll get to a little bit more of that in a second. But Pete, during his young years with the one arm, taught himself to field the ball in the outfield, in the infield, how to successfully back up a player uh, in the field, and then also how to hit at the plate. So, you know, one thing remained constant throughout Pete's life. In addition to, I guess, wanting to play baseball, he didn't want to be treated like anybody else on or off the field. He hated any sympathy or pity that anybody tried to bestow on him. There's a story of when Pete was in his teens, he was playing at his neighborhood sandlot with the other kids, and he ran uh, to home plate in play, and he crashed into the catcher, which helped knock the baseball out of the catcher's glove. This resulted in him being safe at home plate, and the catcher was pretty upset, as you know most home plate collisions lead to. And he told Pete, listen, I would hit you in the face if only you had two arms. And of course, Pete didn't take well to this. And he got into the face of the catcher and said, go ahead and try. As another example of Pete wanting to be treated like everybody else, in 1941, when he was 27 years old, Pearl Harbor was attacked. And Pete immediately went to enlist in the army. He always had a strong sense of patriotism. Shortly after he applied to enlist, he was denied on the basis that he was an amputee. Pete did not take that well, and he was quoted as saying after he learned of this rejection, quote, if I can teach myself how to play baseball with one arm, I sure as hell could handle a rifle, end quote. Pete continued to play throughout his high school years, perfecting this technique of being able to play with one arm, and uh, he started after graduating from high school, working towards that dream of playing pro ball. He wasn't going to let anybody tell him he couldn't, and he didn't. So when Pete was 19 years old, he decided to pursue his dream of going pro. 
like his brother, who, as I mentioned earlier, had achieved regional fame as a boxer, Pete learned very on, based on the advice of family and other people in his community, that he was going to have to change his name. Remember, he was born Peter Weishner, and he decided to change it to Pete Gray. Why would he do that? Remember, Pete was uh, from Lithuanian stock. His parents had uh, emigrated from there. And Eastern Europeans in general were not treated very well at all in the early 1900s. And there were several reasons for this in particular with people who came from Lithuania. There were two huge waves of Lithuanian immigration to the United States, and one of them happened right after World War I. And Pete's parents were a part of that group. Uh, it was tough times after World War I, and, you know, as we always see during economic downturns, you have this kind of pitting against the American worker versus the immigrant worker. And Lithuanians were seen as people who were taking American jobs because they were willing to come in and they were willing to take those tough jobs, like working in the mines or the meatpacking plants or the garment factories. Lithuanians primarily filled these gaps because of the, the poor pay and the, I guess, the basic nature of the work. They were starting from scratch, moving to a new country. So there was kind of that uh, Lithuanians are taking American jobs narrative that caused some discrimination. In addition to that, Lithuanians were fleeing from the Russian Empire and their recent turn to communism. So there was a general fear of Lithuanians in the United States by good stock Americans that uh, they were coming to plot and overthrow the U.S. government, that they were spies and communist sympathizers, and we got to keep an eye on them. Thirdly, the large majority of Lithuanians were Roman Catholic, and Roman Catholicism, especially during the 1800s, but also during the early 1900s, and I guess even to an extent today, although nowhere near as previous generations, Roman Catholicism was seen very unfavorably because the United States has always been a largely Protestant nation and Catholics are often synonymous with uh, end times, uh, being on the wrong end of that as the persecutor, uh, being seen as people who were uh, working behind the scenes to control world government or control U.S. government. And so you've got kind of a trifecta here against Lithuanians. They were taking American jobs, they were communists, and they were Catholics. So Pete, uh, on the council, like I said, of friends and community members, changed his name to Gray. And from this point on, we know him in the history books as Peter Gray. So the newly named Pete Gray decided to, at 19 years old, go and try out for his local mining town's baseball club. And he quickly earned a spot playing in the outfield. He built on that early, you know, acceptance and he was able to earn a spot on another semi-professional ball club in a larger part of Pennsylvania towards Scranton. So he's going from a small town mining club that played, you know, with other mining clubs in the area. Now he's playing for a major metropolitan semi-pro team in Scranton. Then, he, again, he's around 21 years old. He is able to land a contract with another semi-professional team in Brooklyn, New York. So he's quickly moving up the ranks here. He is recognized as someone who could actually play ball. And, you know, a little bit on the side, people wanted to come out and see this one-armed baseball player and, and how well he could play the game. So if we fast forward to 1942, Pete makes his first appearance on an official minor league team when he signed a contract with the Troy Riviere's Renards of the Canadian American League. This was an officially recognized minor league 
uh, that led up to the professional clubs. So this wasn't like a town team or a, a company team. This was the real deal. Now, word spread very quickly amongst the Renards fan base that they had signed a one-armed baseball player from the United States. And fans flocked to the first game to be able to see this. Now, poetically, during that first game, Pete's team was tied at the bottom of the ninth, and it was his turn to come to the plate. There were two outs, and the bases were loaded, and Pete, of course, responded by hitting a line drive to right field, and he drove in both the tying and the winning runs. What a way to start your career in the minor leagues. Fans were so happy and excited that they won this game and that Pete did it that they threw money onto the field as kind of a, you know, as a celebratory gesture. And uh, from what I could find, that money that was thrown on the field was about $700 total. Now, that's, that's 1942 $700, although I wouldn't mind $700 today either. But just to give you a scope of, I guess, the fan appreciation for Pete right off the bat, I went to the U.S. inflation calculator and $700 in... 1942 was equal to $11,108. So not, not a bad haul for one game, that's for sure. Now, Pete, in his first season uh, with the Renards, uh, he played very well, and he amazed people with his abilities. On the season, he hit 381, but he only ended up playing about half the season, 42 games, because during the season, he actually broke his collarbone and tore a ligament. So that cut his first season short. But... Hit 381, was drawing people to the park with his play and, of course, with the spectacle of seeing a player that was different than everybody else. And that caught the attention of other teams around other leagues. So that skill and ability to draw a crowd prompted the Memphis Chickasaws, who were a single A team in the Southern Association, to sign Pete for the 1942 season. So he's back in the States. He's playing for a single A squad. And he plays very well there. He spends two seasons there. He bats 289 and 333, respectively. In 1944, his second team with the Chick or his second season, excuse me, with the Chickasaws, he won the league MVP. He was lauded in newspapers as the most courageous athlete. And Gray, going back to that desire to not wanting to be treated like other people or to have any special type of uh, accolades given to him, he had something to say when the newspapers started running that line. Uh, he said, quote, boys, I can't fight. And so there's no courage about me. Courage belongs on the battlefield, not on the baseball diamond, end quote. Keep in mind, this is at the height of World War II. The U.S. is involved and uh, he deflected any sort of uh, praise for that, you know, and reserved it for people who were fighting overseas and giving their lives. It certainly says a lot about his character. Now, it was during this time, during those two years with the Chickasaws, that he also gained the nickname that would stick with him through the history books. Sports writers started to call him the One-Armed Wonder. And like I said, that nickname stuck with him. It's the name of this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, Gray, overall, during his three years here in, in the minors between Canada and the United States, he developed a reputation as being a very good all-around ball player. He quickly built up a reputation for having two really undeniable strengths. The first one was that he was fast, like really fast. Just to illustrate that, during his MVP 1944 season, he stole 68 bases. He was also known as a very skilled place hitter. I had mentioned before he was known throughout his year as being a very good pull hitter, but he could really put the ball wherever he wanted. He didn't hit for power, but he could certainly hit for contact. 
And his career batting average over his entire, you know, span of playing in, in the minors and majors, he batted 308. And he was known as being a doubles machine. I mean, he could hit doubles without issue in his ability to place the ball where the fielders weren't and his ability to reach second, you know, on the turn because of his speed. He uh, was known for those two things. Now, his skill level and just the overall adoration that the public built up for him quickly grabbed the attention of professional teams. So did Pete get his chance to play in the big leagues? We'll find out after the seventh inning stretch. So stay with me, folks. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you for staying with us. Let's go ahead and pick up our story of Pete Gray in the year 1945. We mentioned that he had played the three previous seasons in the minor leagues, working his way up in both Canada and the United States. And he won an MVP award along the way and was generally just packing out stadiums with people who really were interested in seeing him play. And he was good at what he was doing as well. So after winning that MVP award in 1944, the St. Louis Browns, who were then a squad in the American League, decided to purchase Gray's contract from the Chickasaws for $20,000. Now, free agency worked a little bit differently during this time period, and that's certainly a topic for another episode, but Gray uh, ended up having his contract purchased. He joined the Browns. He's now a big league ball player and received a salary of $4,000 for the year. In modern day terms, that's the equivalent of about $63,479, so... By no means big money, but remember the salaries of today were not synonymous with uh, salaries, uh, well, even into recent memories, if you go back 40 years ago. But again, a topic for another time. So he, he was drawing a, a decent salary, I guess is my point. So the Browns brought him on. They listed him as an outfielder on the official roster card. And during the 1945 season, he ended up playing both left and center field. He chose number 14 to wear. I could not find any information as to why he chose the number 14, but that number is, of course, synonymous with him during this um, period of big league play. Now, Pete hoped to translate his success in the minor leagues into the big leagues, and he started off really strong. He got his first major league hit very early on in April against the Detroit Tigers. It was a single. And just to illustrate another mark of his early season success, there was a doubleheader that the Browns played against the Yankees uh, on May 19th of that season, so still early on in the season, and he smacked five hits, and he collected two RBIs. So he was making his presence known early on in the season, and uh, it looked like the investment was going to pay off for the Browns. They also were packing out stadiums, and uh, the previous year the Browns had not, even though they had a successful season, were not drawing fans into the park, but they certainly were now that they had Pete Gray. Now, this is really the high point of Pete's baseball career, um, the beginning months of his first year in the big leagues. Um, his troubles began when pitchers figured out 
that he had trouble hitting breaking balls. This was mainly because he was batting, of course, with one arm. So when he started his swing, he couldn't really change his timing and check the swing. So opposing pitchers really picked up on that very quickly, and they took advantage of that fact. And no matter which team they played, pitchers would exclusively almost throw him curveballs. So Pete's strikeout ratio went up. He wasn't able to hit the ball as well as he had been. And uh, he tried to adjust his game to his credit. Pete is an, and he's an adapter. Uh, he doesn't give up. And it, this was evidenced during the 1945 season. He uh, taught himself how to be able to bunt the ball to try and be able to get on base that way in spite of all these breaking pitches that were being thrown at him. The way he would do this is that he, when the pitch was thrown, he would take the base of the bat and he'd put it against his hip and then he'd slide his hand about a third of the way up the bat in order to be able to aim it and make contact. So he was using his hip as, I guess, the other hand to be able to hold the bat. And remember, he's really fast. So his blazing speed helped him connect or collect, I guess you say, on a decent amount of singles this way. But uh, he had to rely on this tactic far too much. And as a result, you know, fielders would start playing in on him whenever he came up to bat. And uh, this was really the only reliable way that he can make contact with these off-speed pitches. But again, you know, fielders started adjusting to that fact. And he did not turn out the offensive production that the Browns had hoped he would. Now, I do want to point out that his season wasn't completely horrible. I think there's, at least on some websites that I looked at, this attitude like he was a disaster. It wasn't that bad. His, his batting average for the 1945 season, it finished at 216. I've seen lower, especially amongst some infielders and catchers. So um, he wasn't able to overcome that, though, unfortunately. And on top of the batting woes that he faced, uh, he did struggle defensively during that year with the Browns. He finished third amongst left fielders in errors. Uh, he collected six on the season. That doesn't sound like a lot, but during that season, he did. Um, but again, he's playing with one arm here. So overall, the Browns, they finished in 1945. They were not happy with the production of their investment after his first season. And I guess to, to top off the lackluster play, Pete was not known, especially in the media, as getting along well with his teammates on the Browns. See, the Browns had won the pennant the year before, in 1944. And as their season progressed, they weren't reaching that same level of success and many decided to make Gray the scapegoat. And they felt that he was slowing them down in their quest to repeat, and that he was just a sideshow there to sell tickets. Don Gutteridge, who played with Pete during the 1945 season, he was an infielder for the Browns, he was quoted later on in an interview as saying, uh, quote, some of the guys thought Pete was being used to draw fans late in the season when the club was still in the pennant race, and he just wasn't hitting well, end quote. When Pete was asked about this in an interview later on in life, his relationship with his teammates, he said, quote, if they insulted me, I didn't pay attention. I mostly kept to myself. That's why I got the reputation of being tough to get along with, end quote. So, yeah, even though Pete had his struggles during his first season in the big leagues, the narrative that he sunk the Browns' chances of repeating, that, that doesn't really match with the stats. And let me explain. During that 1945 season... Uh, St. Louis, they compiled a win percentage of 600 when Pete was on the field. But when he was off the field, it was only 425. So they didn't play any better when he wasn't on the field. Nevertheless, the Browns did not uh, renew Gray's contract after the 1945 season. 
They ended up finishing third. And uh, I guess to further illustrate that we can't put that on Pete completely, that season with with Pete in the lineup, 1945, that was their last winning season. Even though they didn't win the pennant again, they finished with a winning record. And uh, they didn't have a winning season for uh, another nine years till they moved to Baltimore in 1954. So that was the end of Gray's time in St. Louis. It wasn't a great experience for him, unfortunately. Uh, in the 1945 offseason, Brown did get a chance to try out for the Philadelphia Athletics, but uh, they never called him up to the big league squad. So he ended up staying in the minor leagues for the remainder of his career. He played three more seasons. He played from 1946 to 1950, and he ended up retiring at age 34, so not old at all. Now, during his time in his last three years in the minor leagues, when he shifted back, he played well. He hit 250 and 290 after that, and then in his final season, he hit 214. Uh, A lot of it was due to the fact that pitchers had kind of figured out how to be able to get around him, unfortunately. But from time to time, after he retired, uh, he would take part in some barnstorming games with exhibition teams. But he stopped doing that uh, in the early 1950s. So by the end of his 30s, he really was just out of playing baseball. Now, it it doesn't get better from here, unfortunately. Um, Pete's post-playing days, they were mostly a sad affair from what I could read. He never could really shake from his mind from what the detractors said that his career was only because he was a sideshow who sold tickets and he just couldn't get over that. And he ended up playing through most of his career earnings very quickly. He burned right through them. He developed a gambling problem and a drinking problem and generally just became uh, very secluded. He hated any publicity or press who would call him and ask about you know, quotes about his life or wanted to profile him, and he would shut down really any attempts to showcase him. So, you know, his post-playing days were not great. And, you know, before we talk about his death and I guess how things wrapped up, I do want to take a minute and talk about the good that Pete Gray did. So let's circle back to his playing career. Remember, when he starts in 1942 in Canada and then moves down to the Chickasaws, In the Southern Association, this is at the height of World War II. The U.S. had just entered. Servicemen were coming back as amputees in large numbers, and Pete really became a hero to these individuals watching him play. Pete did his part for the war effort, too. I mean, he, on his own time, on off days, he would go visit Army hospitals. He would go to rehab centers. He would meet with these amputees. He would give speeches and reassure these individuals that they could still live productive lives just like he did. And he really provided hope to these individuals who were coming back, you know, not in the same shape that they left and facing a new future, uh, unsure of what it was going to be like. You know, Pete may have forgotten the inspiration that he gave to so many during those dark days of his post-playing career, but... I think, thankfully, towards the end of his life, he did allow a TV movie and a biography to be written about him. And the popularity of both of those with the public really helped him regain some, I guess, a sense of of importance about himself, that he was important to baseball, that he was an icon to the disabled community, that his life was an inspiration to others. Now, he died in 2002. Uh, he was 87 years old 
and he's resting at a site in Hanover, Pennsylvania. In 2002, a year after he passed, Gray was recognized by the Historical Museum Commission in Pennsylvania, and they ended up placing a roadside marker in his hometown of Nanticoke, where his dad had been a miner. And that's still there for you to see if you're ever taking a road trip through, uh, road trip through the area. You can also go to Cooperstown and see Pete's glove. It's on display at the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was also enshrined in Baseball Reliquary's Shrine of the Eternals in 2011. So there were some posthumous actions to really celebrate what Pete had accomplished. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Pete's life, there is a 1987 uh, TV movie that was produced about it. And the name of that is... A Winner Never Quits. You can also look for a copy of his biography, which was entitled One-Armed Wonder, Pete Gray, Wartime Baseball, and the American Dream. That was written by William C. Koshitis. I'll make sure to include links in the show notes to both, so you can check them out. Overall, I'd be lying to you if I told you that looking into Pete's life and learning about him didn't get me a little bit I guess, down, you know, he, he's just, he's an inspirational figure and it's sad that he didn't realize it after his playing career finished. And so many of us, we just give up on something at the slightest inconvenience. And yet here was Pete. He suffered a catastrophic injury at a young age and he refused to let that moment dictate his future. He rose above it and he still achieved his dreams. And Pete, just for that, you're an inspiration to all of us. I think your life is a reminder that we can always choose to keep going no matter what's in front of us. So the next time you're feeling like the challenges in your life are too much, remember to adopt a Pete Gray attitude. I have some neat photos and newsreels of Pete's technique that he used and some uh, newsreel of him in action that I found online. And I'm going to be posting those on my social media accounts. So make sure to subscribe to see them. I am on Facebook Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Overall, thank you again for tuning in to another episode. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm glad to have shared Pete Gray's story with you. And remember, share the podcast with a friend so we can grow the audience and other people can learn about some of these individuals and stories that, uh, that we're discussing on this podcast. And if you can, it always helps. Leave a review on the podcast app that you're using, whether it's Stitcher, Overcast, the stock Apple app, whatever it is, you know, a review helps, even if it's just a few stars. Overall, just thank you for your patronage. I am enjoying getting back to this and I'm enjoying having you take a little time out of your day to listen. And overall, remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.